Hello, everyone. You're very welcome once again to the Plainly Queer podcast. My name is Paul O'Byrne. I'm here with Claude McGrath, my lovely co-host. And we are joined by a very special guest. Chris Sheridan is with us today. Uh, Chris is the founder of The Queer Therapist, uh, so lead psychotherapist and expert advisor for the queer mental health app Voda. We are very happy to have them with us today. Uh, Chris, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for yeah inviting me to yeah participate today. Really happy. And Chris, I just find out like literally just before we were coming on, I was just doing some extra googling as one does, and you're actually originally from Ireland. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I didn't like, cop that until just now. So my apologies. Where are you from originally? So originally from Dublin, and lived in Dublin and up until I believe I was about twenty three. Oh right, okay. You I'm don't there. have a strong accent at all. No. So, so my mum, even though my mum spent most of her life, so my mum's side of the family are like English Maltese, but my mum has spent most of her life in Ireland, but has that accent. My dad was Scottish and is also a mix of different sort of European identities, but lived in, lived in Ireland. And we were also part of a Greek Orthodox church when we grew up. So there was a lot of kind of, I, I suppose that speaks again to sort of my context and background. We had a lot of, I guess, yeah, just European influence growing up. But I think living living in the UK is interesting because people are like quickly pick up that I'm Irish. Whereas when I'm back in Ireland, they're like, are you? Are you Irish? So I always find that, yeah, fascinating. Yeah, yeah. I like, couldn't when when you were talking. I was like, I can't place the accent at all. Like I knew there was the Irish, there is the Irish in the background, right? I was like, where? Like, no, I wouldn't have said Dublin now at all. I will claim me definitely 100% we're going to claim me but I am I am proudly Irish I think as a core part of my identity I am like fiercely Irish I would say I love it (laughs) great okay so I'm going to go straight into one of one of our questions today and that is that as a queer therapist what teens and challenges do you encounter in your private practice so amongst other queer uh, individuals what is coming into the earth yeah it's a it's a fairly broad mix of presentations so I think it'd be helpful just to kind of start off by talking about I suppose when we're talking about working with queer queer clients in general we're talking about many intersections that interface with heteronormativity and mm. cis normativity and with that sort of interfacing of identities with heteronormativity and cisnormativity, we see different presentations in different groups. So, for instance, themes that come up with my trans clients may look actually quite different to themes that come up with, say, queer women or gay men. I think the kind of overarching themes across all of my kind of queer client work is things like shame shame is a big one shame is kind of sits at the foundation of a lot of the work that i do working to identify how has how has this person kind of managed or coped with their shame and often will have they will have developed different kind of coping mechanisms or defense mechanisms to manage that underlying shame rejection is another major theme so that's not just rejection say from family or loved ones but again it's it's I guess rejection from society and even a rejection of oneself so that kind of internalized homophobia biphobia transphobia is present there yeah the rejection is 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 a massive one another major theme across the full sort of alphabet alphabet soup is kind of dealing with hypervigilance and minority stress so again if we're thinking about um moving through the world with an awareness of otherness as part of our identities we're likely going to be kind of screening or scanning our environments for maybe real or perceived instances of rejection again Mm. or criticism or Am I being othered in these environments? And again, what that does is it it kind of it kind of compounds what maybe sort of underlines the mental health issues. It compounds that and means that our community is facing more sort of mental health issues as a result. 
if we go in and we look at the kind of individual identities, so trans and gender diverse identities, for instance, we see kind of themes there of obviously transitioning. That's a huge theme. And that could be at any point along that kind of transitioning journey. So people who are maybe who are just questioning, who are maybe just starting to notice that there might be some sort of clash between the gender that they've been assigned and then the gender that they actually identify with. Or we could be meeting somebody that's fairly far along in their transitioning journey, but may actually decide they want to take more steps, say, to socially or medically transition. Things like kind of other things within the sort of trans or gender diverse population are kind of a lot of practical considerations there, including kind of hormone replacement therapy, navigating medical systems, navigating oppressive structures is probably the biggest theme in that work. I think mm. the more the more work I do with trans and gender diverse people, the more I realize it's not the individual with the issue. It's usually they are having to wait. They are having to, again, navigate oppressive heteronormative or cisnormative structures so yeah, it really it could be anywhere along along that journey and navigating all of the kind of medical complexity that comes with that. If we look at say gay men, for instance, how shame maybe have has kind of played out with gay men. What we see a lot is again really quite unrelenting standards, perfectionism, kind of very high achieving. What that means in the kind of therapy space is we're dealing with a huge amount of self criticism. We're dealing with a huge amount, again, of shame. So a lot of the work is around kind of building self-compassion and mm. even building compassion for, for peers in the community. So, again, I've worked with various different even sort of dating sort of platforms or dating apps. And we see particularly with gay men a huge amount of hostility, again, on a lot of sort of gay dating platforms. And again, we need to kind of interrogate, well, where's that coming from? And again, a lot of that is is to do with shame. Mm. Queer women or, yeah, those that identify as women or cisgender women are generally speaking kind of dealing with themes of Again, I would say invisibility is a core theme. Invalidation is a core theme. And again, shame is a core theme that sits in there. There could be further kind of complexity in there around things like fertility, things like navigating what it means to be a queer woman within the sort of family structure or within wider society. And again, power dynamics play a huge part in that. So each identity has its own interesting power dynamics when it comes to interfacing with their families and interfacing with the world so huge huge complexity and i haven't even mentioned those of those of our clients who are asexual those of our clients who are intersex and the medical complications that come up with that medical stigma that comes up with that or asexuality who which is again still profoundly stigmatized as an identity and and while whilst I'm seeing now more more recently, a lot more clients are coming forward and able to kind of proudly name their ace identity or gray sexual identity, whatever it is, yeah, it's still very very stigmatized. So I hope I hope that gives you a, a yeah. Totally. I was taking notes. I was literally yeah. as you were speaking, like so much was sparking, and I think one word that you kind of brought up, one theme. Like we've we've obviously done a series on queer mental health, just discussing it ourselves as two psychotherapists, myself and Cloda. But uh, I I don't remember hearing the word rejection much actually in our discussions or in our kind of exploration of this over the last few months. And you're so it's rejection is so it's at the core, isn't it? It's like it's it's that just that I absolute fear even in relation to coming out. There, the apprehension and the fear around that is all about rejection. It's all about being rejected. And yeah, and, and shame, of course. A question that I asked another guest a, a few weeks ago, and I'll put it to yourself as well, Chris. Do you think, as a queer community, we'll ever not feel shame? I think the only way we will not feel shame is that is if our societies become queerer. Mm. And what I mean by that is if we start moving away from binary thinking, if we start moving away from the idea that there's 
only man, only woman. There's only gay, there's only straight, there's only monogamy or there's only polyamory. Once we're kind of fused to that binary thinking, that's what often fuels the shame. Because Mm. if we don't see ourselves within that binary, we're immediately feeling defective or flawed or that there's Mm. something, yeah, something wrong with us. So the only the only way our community will will really, I suppose, recover from from shame is is societal shifts and attitudes that are yeah I mean at Voda we talk about the future is queer yeah. the future is queer we we strongly believe that and that that is the only mechanism I believe that will will shift that. It goes to the importance of the training. Then you spoke on so many themes there that even just even just mentioning the hypervigilance a person would go through in, in no matter what their, their presentation in life or what they're going through, that hypervigilance, I don't think, is talked about. And I don't think it will be recognized in the room uh, or a thought of in the room unless you have the training to know this is what queer individuals are living. It's this. It's such an important point, Cloda. So again, with within traditional talking therapies, we focus on things like cognitive distortions. But when we take the idea of cognitive distortions into the room, into queer therapy, actually the person often has a very legitimate reason for having cognitive distortions. Mm-hmm. And yes, maybe some of that work in the therapy room will be to sort of help that person to develop more adaptive cognitive styles that's thinking patterns but actually some of those thinking patterns could be adaptive could be actually helpful to their safety could be helpful to their sense of well-being so if that that's the fundamental i think the 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 fundamental i guess in the reason why it's so important that queer therapy as a as an approach gsrd therapy as an approach becomes mandatory in our training programs because without that information how are therapists supposed to understand this kind of the systemic stuff that's in the the ideas of heteronormativity and cisnormativity and binary thinking and so again that that allows us to in many ways i think with a lot of my clients i always use this i don't know if you've come across it there's something called the Wheel of Power and Privilege by Sylvia Duckworth. And it's a really helpful infographic to look at power and privilege in in society. When I show my clients this, you can just see this sort of light bulb going off in their heads and they realize, oh, this is this isn't actually about me. This is how our societies have been structured. Mm-hmm. This is how our societies have been organized. And then we can get get th- to thinking about well, who do those categories serve? Do those categories serve? And who who established, who created these categories and for what purpose? So again, it just shifts the focus from I'm I'm not the issue in this in this picture. So yeah, it's hugely important. I think it's also important what you've highlighted, Chris, is for therapists to be willing to operate outside of the binary to kind of and I think a lot of therapists maybe would have fear in even approaching many of the issues that you touched on that you kind of you come across I I think because without knowledge there's you wouldn't have the confidence to approach these or you wouldn't have the confidence to kind of work with these presentations so I think it's about stepping up and being able to kind of journey outside of that binary with your client and I suppose like you say in a compassionate way yeah and that's that's quite scary what we're Mm. asking again therapists to do is probably the same work we're asking our clients to do which is is scary it's it can actually seem quite overwhelming that sort of expansiveness stepping outside of that into what is beyond the binary it's kind of yeah we get we get to choose I imagine it would make a lot of people, and it has done, I've seen it many times over, but it makes a lot of people question their own lives. So there's a, there will be a hesitation for them to go there because actually, no, I like my box. My box yeah. is safe and I know the corners of my box. So please don't take me out of my box. Yeah. Yeah. Don't, don't threaten my safety. Yeah. Mm. Interesting. 
Chris, you mentioned their VODA and I suppose you are the lead psychotherapist and the kind of expert advisor for VODA. But I suppose, how did VODA come about? How did your involvement with VODA come about and what's your experience of it been? So VODA was originally founded by Jaron, my colleague, and now there's there's two sort of main co-founders, so there's Chris and Jaron. So Jaron established VODA now kind of a year and a half, two years ago, and really off the back of, I, I can speak briefly about Jaron's experience, but off the back of being an Asian gay man, and struggling, struggling with navigating, again, the world as an, as an Asian gay man. And so Jaron's background is in sort of startups and isn't, I, I, I know with Jaron, Voda isn't just about, it's not just about work. This is, this is passion. This is love. This is absolutely purpose for, for him. Jaron approached me probably about sort of six months in. And so, yeah, I, I did well, I do, and I did a fair amount of posting online on Instagram and generally have just been kind of building my own brand, which is kind of very much focused, yes, on the kind of queer queer therapy side of things, but but more specifically on trans, gender diverse and neurodivergent identities. And alongside that, we've also developed a sort of training arm that is actually really pushing forward for exactly what we're talking about, becoming mandatory in in training courses so we ended up providing a sort of core cpd for the bacp here in the uk which is on working with trans and gender diverse clients so there's been i guess a fair amount of i suppose what you could call thought leadership that's been formed out of the kind of queer therapist brand and that was the sort of initiating factor for jaron to approach me i think jaron saw alignment in terms of kind of my therapeutic approach and what his vision is for Boda. I've mentioned there we now have so co-founder Chris, who is honestly like computer scientist genius, just and also just a fantastic guy. And we also have a team of other therapists as well that kind of feed into it. So far my experience has been it's been it's been wonderful. It's been really again just aligned with my own values. I with kind of developing the queer therapist, it, it was about claiming space and creating a space that we don't typically see. When we go to therapy agencies or we go into therapy practices, we don't generally see trans therapists or neurodivergent therapists or queer therapists for that matter. So for me, the queer therapist was very much about claiming that space mm. and proudly proudly standing out again historically it always worked in fairly I guess you would describe heteronormative cisnormative environments like the NHS or like other third sector therapy agencies so the opportunity really was about expanding that vision for almost like the scale of what we could potentially offer to not just the UK, but long term globally, what, what Voda will be able to offer, we hope, will be huge for many, mm. many people. I mean, for me, there's just something about we have we have feedback that regularly comes in and uh, young people all the time who will just say they will, I don't know, listen to one of the programs on managing gender dysphoria. And they will say, this has offered me even five minutes of relief. Mm. That, that's, that's huge. That's huge. So again, yeah, very aligned with my own values of how can we democratize the sort of psychoeducational knowledge around kind of queer therapy? How can we get this information out to the masses? This shouldn't be something that is kind of, in many ways, kind of, elitist in terms mm. of who can afford therapy who can access those spaces everyone should be able to access those spaces so Voda has a, a completely free sort of suite of programs and has an extremely affordable package for the sort of premium membership and we are this month we've just put out a sort of pride collection which is fantastic we've also released another 30 programs this month and each month we're going to be just building up our bank of programs so yeah uh, oh, it's, it's been wonderful 
Yeah. I wake up to Voda every morning because the little kind of daily thought comes up and then that makes you click into it. And then what's your mood for the day? And you pick your emoji. Then I do my little kind of two or three line journaling. And it's just so it's it's user friendly and it's it's not too intense. It's very yeah, it, it, it's very kind of not it's basic, but in a good way. You you can engage with it. It's not overwhelming. The amount of psychoeducation on it, like you say, is like top notch. It's very digestible, even first thing in the morning. <laughs> Thank you so much for feeding that back. Well, that's just again, that's wonderful to hear. And again, we're we're bootstrapped as a as a kind of company so far. So we're only going to see that kind of program just expand, or the bank mm. of programs expand. Things are only going to get better, but. Yeah, I think w- one of the main kind of things for Voda is about y- user friendliness and also the aesthetics. So the design is really important as well. But it's great. It's great to hear that you're using yeah. it. More emojis, maybe. Sometimes I'm kind of like, I might be a little bit in between those two. Um, <laughs> yeah, maybe more. I believe you can now do multiple emojis, I think. I don't use the emoji function, but that's mm. that's what I heard. It makes me feel young when I do the <laughs> it makes me feel young. No, yeah, but no, it is a great uh, mental health resource for the queer. And I think it's a great actually app I've been telling peers like to recommend to clients like that. Maybe mm. kind of therapists who aren't really kind of as informed as they could be due to core training, link into resources like this. Use it as a tool in the therapy space for your queer clients. Yeah. And, and what we're kind of, again, what we're sort of telling even other therapists is this can be given how expensive, again, therapy is, this can subsidize some of that. So mm. some of our clients who we've maybe been seeing for a very long time, we might say, right, actually, let's move on to seeing each other every two weeks, but I'd like you to do a couple of these programs in between and we can kind of feed back. And so again, just, yeah, how we can use that to supplement our own, our own therapy as well can be yeah a really good resource. Mm. very empowering as well mm. putting the power back into the client's hands it's it's great yeah literally yeah uh okay so for for i'm gonna jump off the the vote now for for a minute and and ask for those that don't know for those that are listening and and asking questions and wondering either about themselves or about others but one of the one of the one of the questions that comes up a lot is what's the difference between non-binary and transgender? Are there intersections between them? What, what is it that people are asking when they ask that question? So if we think about kind of transgender almost as like the umbrella kind of label, and then we can kind of see all of the different sort of trans and gender diverse identities under that. So we might have trans, simply just trans. We might have non-binary. We might have trans femme, trans woman, trans mask, trans masculine, gender queer, agender, gender neutral. I can never pronounce that one. There's a huge. What was that? Neutral. So neutral. So essentially, gender neutral. Okay. Is, is another one, but of course, language is ever evolving. And certainly, when I'm working with my own clients, I think the most important thing to do is to ask what meaning do you give this label? So in my case, I generally refer to myself as trans, but more specifically, I identify as trans mask non-binary. So that will be very different for another person. But the, the kind of distinctions there are generally speaking transgender. If a person is describing themselves as transgender, they may experience their gender as something that's more closely aligned to gender binaries so they may see themselves fitting more neatly into either the kind of man or woman category whereas if we're talking about a non-binary identity that person might be the spectrum analogy is a little bit outdated but i'll use that for now so if we're talking about a non-binary identity we might be talking about someone who experiences essentially neither an absence of womanness, an absence of manness, and may identify somewhere along that sort of spectrum, maybe leaning more towards femme expression or more towards mask expression. But there are plenty of non-binary people who 
kind of don't experience. They just have an absence of both of those identities and actually don't see themselves falling along that spectrum. So, yes, there are huge intersections. So, again, I think simply I'm I'm labeling myself as trans and non-binary. There's a huge amount of intersection. And it in, in many ways, again, it speaks to the, I suppose, the complexity of the language that we're using. But generally speaking, I think we just need to ask, what does that mean to you? What does non-binary mean to you? What does being trans mean to you? Mm. Yeah. And, so, can, can I follow up, Claudia? Just really sorry. We're going to probably come in here and like, oh, a million things. You mentioned there, Chris, the kind of the concept of the spectrum is now becoming a little bit kind of outdated. I know for myself, I would use I would use that sometimes to frame sexuality and gender as a spectrum. What alternative is there now in relation to that? What other way of reframing yeah. that is there? So the the spectrum is actually, it's a helpful almost like way in just to start our thinking about it. But if we really start thinking about gender, like any other identity, there's going to be multiple dimensions to it. So where we have one spectrum, that's kind of a one dimensional view. So that's why that's why I'm sort of saying, okay, it's a little bit it's a little bit outdated. So some people are actually describing it more of a like 360 degree universe of possibility. It's 360 degree expansiveness of expression. Mm. So that gender expression could could present itself in multiple different dimensions. So we're talking about not just gender identity as one dimension, but we're talking about a dimension of gender expression or a dimension of even things like it could be a thing, a dimension of butchness. It could be a dimension of how even our humanness can be an ex, a sort of gender experience that some of my clients will talk about. Mm. What's coming into my head, okay, only because I do this, the word sphere is coming up like a, in relation to a three-dimensional sphere. Yeah. I think that's a lovely way to describe it. Yeah, a sphere. A sphere is really good because actually there's multiple perspectives, multiple angles, and multiple possibilities actually within there. Mm. I was having a vision of colors as well coming in. So you have a, mm. different splashes of colors, and that's in some days you can feel it's more of a certain color, and then on another day it moves. It's just always moving. Do you know when you drop color into water? And they all just start to meld around. That's what was coming into my mind. And everybody has a different flavor. Everybody has a different color. So, yeah. 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 And it's beautiful. And it's kind of, I guess, ultimately, it's getting away from the binary. But it's also trying to, again, shift the focus onto, we don't actually have to define this. We can actually sit in that expansiveness. That's okay. I, and I think as well to let people know that they can continue growing they can continue uh, expressing waking up on a, on a daily basis going okay what do I feel like today like any like you would say to anybody that like, you get to become every day mm-hmm. so allowing yourself to write your whole life not that not that you are getting the labels I know we want to move away from the labels but getting the labels to put yourself in another box you're actually in a year's time you may feel different and to constantly allow that to happen yeah. How, how free yeah. is that? Yeah. I just love the idea, right, of waking up in the morning and going down to Primark and just kind of browsing the whole place and just picking out something you'd like that day and just being able to do that every day. Just go into kind of like some department store and just pick out the outfit, just not based on anything, just, yeah, how you're feeling in the moment. This is how I'm feeling. Yeah. yeah. What I'm kind of observing, even just as we're talking about this, is the kind of smiling. We're all kind of smiling. There's something really kind of, I don't know, soothing and lovely mm. about that idea. It's just like, mm. you just got to be you. Just yeah. got to be you. Yeah. And I, I suppose my follow up question then is probably going to counter that because I suppose there is then the lived reality of what the world is like outside of spaces like this where we get to smile, where we get to kind of experience queer joy with each other. What are your thoughts on the current kind of transphobia and kind of that anti-binary, non-binary rhetoric that's out there at the moment? What are your thoughts in relation to that? I mean, I think from the outset, it's it's kind of devastating, you know, 
it's just mm. devastating kind of what's happening in the world right now and for, for your listeners who maybe are aware or not aware what, what we're kind of seeing particularly particularly so in the last five years is this growing anti-trans rhetoric particularly so again it kind of really seeded in particular within the UK and we're now starting to see it seed elsewhere very much in the states but also in Australia what I generally kind of say to people when, when I'm kind of explaining this is it's just the tip of the iceberg so what we what we've seen in history is that certain groups in particular will be targeted and that that particular sort of dehumanization or polarization that happens within society is a kind of mechanism to almost like mobilize a base of support for maybe a political leaning. So what we're seeing in the UK and kind of, I would say, across the sort of Western, very Western world in particular, is a sort of move towards more right-wing leaning policies. So this anti-trans rhetoric at its core is actually an anti-democratic sort of rhetoric. And the the kind of the media sort of sensationalization of sort of trans identities and this sort of anti-trans rhetoric is just a smokescreen for what is kind of actually quite painful in terms of what's happening behind that smokescreen in terms of our legislation, our rights being rolled back, not just within the sort of queer community, but this is across sort of many, many different sort of intersections in society. So one one group in particular that I can mention is the sort of turf movement in particular, who are who have gained huge momentum in recent years. So the turf movement is trans exclusionary radical feminists. They are a subset of feminists, and their kind of core belief is that really, I suppose, there's a lot of hostility shown towards trans women, and the core belief within sort of the turf movement is that trans women are not fundamentally women. So it's only those who have been assigned female at birth can can identify themselves as women. And this this kind of thinking or this sort of belief system is being, I would say, mobilized by really prominent figures in society. So the likes of J.K. Rowling and Posey Parker gained huge support. And of course, we know, we know historically, a lot more sort of right-leaning policies tend to have more money to back their campaigns. So they have made huge momentum in recent years. But I suppose I, I say this is a smokescreen. I say this is the tip of the iceberg, because again, if we look across history, so sort of similar dehumanization of gay trans gay men in particular in the 80s, we saw the same dehumanization against Jews as well in the 30s and 40s. It follows the exact same stages. And those stages can be, in many ways, those stages can be, you can literally look at the, I think it's the 10 stages of genocide. Mm. And within the UK, it's sort of out of the 10 stages, I think of the UK, we're roughly at sort of position six and seven within those stages. So six and seven is polarization so where policies are deliberately stirring up polarization so the the gender culture wars that we're seeing is part of that mechanism within the states they they come actually at sort of i think seven and eight within that sort of stages of genocide so i think stage eight speaks to forcible forcibly removing people from a place so we're seeing that in florida for instance families are having to relocate LGBT people are having to relocate because they are they are literally criminalized in these places. So it's frightening, it's devastating, but we progress progress has never been linear. And I I fundamentally believe that this pushback, this huge pushback that we're seeing happening at the moment is in response to visible change on the ground. So in my sort of day-to-day kind of consultancy work and training, I see really amazing change. I see meaningful change in society. And I think we can easily, if we attach ourselves to purely the sort of narrative of policy change or the narrative of our media, I think that will be incredibly demoralizing and despairing 
and we will lose our sense of hope. On the ground, it's different. On the ground, day to day, there is humanization towards trans and gender diverse identities. And as I said, progress isn't linear, but we, we need allies. We need our allies to really to come out, to speak up, to call out dehumanization. We need our allies to humanize us and mm. continue to humanize us. And that happens through visibility and representation and allyship. So that's, that. yeah, that, that's where we're at. Thanks for that. And yeah. I mean, it's it, it must be, as you say, you have the experience of what is in your day to day as the humanizing, as that care piece, as that uh, just living piece, which is which is great. And I think you're you're speaking about the allyship. And I and I think that's what's one of the points that I keep coming across in conversations in my own life about this is that when that's the only thing you're listening to is the polarization in the media you are not getting the picture. You're not getting the full picture. And if you want to help start listening to the people it's affecting, not the people who are writing about it, who's been affected. And I don't, I think that's hugely missed at the moment. Um, and we need to be listening to the, to the voices mm. who are on the ground, uh, who know what, what, what these policies, what these media, what these tropes are doing. And um, thank you for that. That was so, so well put. I'm sorry it, as well. Like, Jesus, it's, it's just, it's, it's heartbreaking. Near- it, yeah. Literally, I was, I, I was here getting emotional as you were talking. And I think it's very powerful the way you framed it in relation to stages of genocide. Like, mm-hmm. and when you kind of think of it like that, and as you say, you frame it against other kind of like past events in history, I don't know. I think I got emotional because I was I was in Poland a couple of weeks ago and I visited Auschwitz and I was in the concentration camps and then talking about the stages of genocide. And I was kind of like, there is so much hate in the there can be so much hate in the world. And how do you counter that? Yeah, you counter it with the hope. You counter it with just that human lived experience that is as like we know was on the ground. There is an actual human lived experience, the trans experience, that's not this kind of thing that's in the media. It's not that. Yeah, I do, there's a lot of, there's a lot, there's a lot of emotion. There's a lot of, yeah. A lot of, again, this anger is coming up again. I've had this like a few times now. It just kind of makes me angry that we can't be like we were 10 minutes ago, all smiling together and basking and wondering at that sphere of possibility so yeah mm. yeah it's it, it is it's really hard to talk about i think it's 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 scary it's just scary what's happening and and, and, and i guess the reason i i i bring up these kind of past historical events is we can often just think oh that's kind of overreacting or that's not that's actually not what's happening here but human history has taught us has taught mm. us things and if we if we pay attention to that we can we can really learn from that and again I, it, it is that it's a tip of the iceberg and it's not i'm not saying this as a threat but i'm there is something here about we think that this is just a group out there that this is happening to we think that we are comfortable that we can stay cozy and comfortable and safe but if it's happening to those groups it is happening to you as well. It is society as a whole that's been chipped away at. And and I think society in response, obviously stirring up, a lot of stirring up political sort of stirring up is happening, but society in response is, is finding something to blame for all of the kind of cost of living crisis that's happening, mm. something to point the finger at. But yeah, hard, hard to talk about. But necessary to talk about. I think, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 100%. Chris, would it be okay to talk about your transition and mm-hmm. how that was for you? And what, what was that like for you at the time? Yeah, I'm happy to share, Cloda. So, so, yeah, I guess it's always hard, I think, when we're talking about transitions. There's never just this like, oh, now I'm transitioning moment. <laughs> it's, it's, it's kind of a lifelong thing. Yeah. And in my case... In my case, again, from a very young age, I knew I had some sort of gender dysphoria there from a very, very young age. And 
but actually kind of muddled along, bumbled along quite happily actually as a child with some of that sort of awareness of discomfort, but obviously not, didn't have the language, didn't have any of the sort of terminology to describe my sort of inner world and experiences. But I think puberty for me was, was the real, that's when things became actually acutely distressing for me. And, and I guess in many ways it tracks with many trans people who going through puberty going through the sort of development of secondary sex characteristics but also psychologically there's all of that kind of pull to fit in and to perform our genders that is mm-hmm. such a strong pull within those sort of teenage years and i i tried i really tried to sort of perform my gender and i think succeeded for a few years but again it all kind of came to a head and at the same time, I was also kind of exploring my own sort of sexual sort of orientation. And, but but that, was, that was fairly straightforward. And I think it was straightforward because I had, some, I had some language, I had some understanding for, I suppose, sexualities outside of being heterosexual. So there was something to kind of attach myself to, whereas the sort of trans or gender diverse identities, it was so stigmatized and... Mm. It was so binary. You were either a man or a woman. I remember at 14, I was like, am I? Am I a man? Do I want? Do I want a beard? Not really. What 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 is that? There was no, of course, non-binary. So again, I sort of, yeah, I, I went through a very sort of difficult period of years and I kind of developed a lot of self-destructive behaviors throughout my sort of teens and late teens. But something sort of switched in me. And I think I went from absolute self-destruct to I'm going to throw myself into overachieving and that became that became my MO and I I I did I achieved I succeeded in all the areas I wanted to succeed in and that was just in many ways a, a distraction I think from a sense of being a sense of not feeling rooted, not feeling clear in, in myself and in my kind of co- conviction about my identity. So it wasn't until I met my now wife, it wasn't until I met Kat that things kind of really consolidated for me. So this was sort of my, my late 20s. And when I met Kat, I was sort of, I guess, quite avoidant about it. I was like, yeah, we can use they, them pronouns. You can use she, her, it's fine, it's fine. And Kat was like, Chris, what would you like? What would you like me to refer to you as? What would you like? And there was something really massive about that. There was something really, really profound about, I think, that moment of I'm being given permission to ask for what? I want I'm being given permission to feel a sense of almost like belonging or I'm being given I, I felt I felt there was enough love to take that risk to really say this is this is me mm. so yeah I I really owe a lot of that to yeah my wife and I it was quite fast it, it was almost like I sort of just catapulted at that moment from so much hesitation, so much avoidance, so much distraction, so many other things to just like, yes. And you um, came home. yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I transitioned, socially transitioned very quickly, friends, family, workplace. That was quite challenging in the workplace. I was working within the NHS at that time. And again, the NHS isn't exactly known for its edgy out there culture. That was quite difficult, but yeah socially transitioned but also medically transitioned when I was in the NHS so I had top surgery and that was again it was really challenging to handle I had I actually had a lovely team of colleagues around me but didn't want I actually just didn't want that information to be shared so yeah I, I think I, I took leave off I took a sort of not a leave of absence but I had I said I had surgery but I didn't name what that surgery was and actually my colleagues, the most of them, I told a couple of people and most of them were again very respectful, didn't didn't sort of pry but pry at all. So and now I'm at a point. So again, I felt there there was a lot of sort of consolidation. I'm I'm at a point now where I'm I would say very proud of my trans identity and also 
still at a point where I'm like, mm, do I, do I, don't I want to progress with hormones? I'm, I, I know I'm, so my sort of dysphoria is very, it's not generalized. It's very much a kind of located in certain parts. And as such, I don't necessarily want all of the changes that come with a full dose of hormone replacement therapy. So I'm thinking maybe starting on a sort of small dose and, and yeah, taking it from there. But that that's where I am right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you for sharing this. And um, it really, so when, it, when you said there, it all happened quite quickly once you were asked that question and were allowed to be you. You were given permission. And it sounds like you gave yourself permission. Mm-hmm. And I think there's something really beautiful about that because it does, everything falls into place after that. So it might feel like it's quick for others, but that to that point, there was such a lot of work being done underground. Yeah. Totally, um, totally, yeah, totally, and and you are right. I think I suppose the again I get the context for that was yeah you're right. So much work. There was also my kind of relationships with my family, which were really making the process of potentially coming out actually very very scary, very frightening. Rejection, big R rejection in there, and but I I think with Cat there was something about. And I see this with my clients all the time. It's like they can't, they can't fully land in themselves unless they have a sense of safety, mm. or safety and stability. So it's like, and I think that that's a really important thing because when we meet our clients, it could be between houses, they could be in difficult relationships, and and trying to establish their careers perhaps, or but it's like sometimes it's it, anecdotally i see this with a lot of my clients it that that feeling of safety is huge in terms of is 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 this worth the risk mm. i i suppose chris just as you're talking there i suppose your kind of experience would be mainly based in the uk but do you have any i suppose sense of and i know you spent your childhood in ireland do you have a sense of through maybe contacts or other people's experience, what it's like in Ireland for kind of trans individuals. And if it's now, I know the National Gender Service in Ireland is waiting up to eight years. It's, listen, it's not fit for purpose. It needs an overhaul. But do you have any kind of insights from, I suppose, what you hear? I mean, believe it or not, Paul, Ireland is actually ranks higher than the UK in terms of their trans healthcare. So I'm not saying that Ireland should get a pat on the back for that because that's still appalling. I think at the moment, at the rate of referrals that are coming in in the NHS, we're now seeing people, that this is shocking, potentially waiting up to 25 years mm. for their first appointment. So it's it, it's it's pretty bad across the board. But my my own, I suppose I can only speak to my own experience when I come back to Ireland. So my mum's now based in Wicklow, and again, just I was there last year for Pride, and again seeing friends and family there. My own experience of Ireland is yeah, I can really only draw from that, which is there's something there's something interesting there's something interesting about Ireland in terms of, I suppose, in terms of its kind of cultural, the kind of whiteness of Ireland, the potential lack of diversity, certainly growing up in the 90s, the lack of diversity within Ireland meant that sort of experiences of otherness felt more pronounced. Mm. Whereas in the UK, so again, the cities I've lived in in the UK have been fairly, I would say fairly diverse culturally something about that kind of melting pot and what that does to shift almost like the collective consciousness of people in that space in terms of tolerance or in terms of just more I don't know less assumptions made when I go back to Ireland I it's not that I experience Ireland as worse in any way than the UK but I do think there's something about that lack of exposure and what that potentially does to the people of Ireland in terms of again yeah, maybe not having enough simply just exposure to difference. So making making assumptions more, I find it challenging. And again, that could that could be speaking to my own my own network, my own family. So again, my family are, I would say, sort of white middle class, 
Christian background, I would say fairly conservative. So I know my own personal experience has been I've probably experienced a lot more sort of sense of hypervigilance because of that environment that I grew up in. Whereas I'm sure there's a lot of people that will, will be listening to this will be like, well, actually, no, my community is pretty diverse, in fact. So I may not have that same experience, but on the whole, what I what I what I have heard is that trans healthcare is better. In terms of day to day out in the street, my own experience is that I, I, I feel more hypervigilant in 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 Irish spaces and in Dublin in particular. Mm. I suppose it just goes to show I I'm just hearing things in relation to kind of what I on the news or from colleagues in relation to kind of frustration around waiting lists. But then again, that could be better in relation to other kind of regions such as the UK where it's even worse, but you just don't realise it. So maybe the grass isn't always greener, but maybe it is. Yeah, I I, I suppose what is sticking with me and why I can't find the words to go on to what I want to say next is something you said in relation to the exposure to difference and how important it is for a society, a small society like Ireland, to actually have exposure to difference, to kind of slowly, yeah, to allow for inclusion, integration. You have to experience it. You can't just mm-hmm. see it on social media or you can't just experience it in mainstream media. You do have yeah. to like experience it. Yeah, yeah, sorry, that's just what came up there when you were talking about that. Yeah. No, but it's and, and when I think about it, I'm like, it's nobody's fault. It's not Ireland's fault, but mm. it's it's just interesting to think about what yeah. that does to our kind of yeah psyche. I do believe there in in the last, I suppose, maybe ten or twenty years in Ireland, there has been such a growth in multiculturalism and intersectionality. So I do think that will slowly change. But okay, I'm going to shift now, shift, because I recently seen pictures of your wedding and it looked absolutely beautiful. But I suppose I want to speak to you about experiences of trans joy and queer joy and your experience of those kind of they're kind of I don't want to say buzzwords now but queer joy is kind of like this kind of buzzword that's in our community now and I know trans joy is there as well what's your experience of queer joy and trans joy and how do you frame them first thing that pops to my mind when I think of trans joy or queer joy is when I'm with trans friends Mm. when it's like a kind of tea for tea trans for trans just there's just uh i don't have to emotionally i don't have to do the sort of educational skilling up i don't there isn't the emotional burden of the kind of work that comes in when yeah i guess when i'm around i guess cisgender people sometimes Mm. there's just this ease there's just this safety there's just this unspoken belonging i guess for me, I think that that's what that's what that's what that joy is about. It's about belonging. It's about connection. It's about it's about the expansiveness that we talked about earlier. The not having to not having to define like labels are really helpful, but again, not having to be defining ourselves strictly with a label. It's being able to sort of stand back from that and feel the freedom of that. That that's what queer joy trans joy means to me yeah 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 and and uh, where can i get me from yeah (laughs) (laughs) what uh, what would your advice then be to younger trans non-binary anybody that's listening and wanting wanting just that what you what you're talking about Mm. my advice would be my advice would be to Find community. That is the biggest, even when we look at sort of mental health outcomes for particularly trans and gender diverse people, the number one best thing that the number one kind of mental health, positive mental health outcome is where we have supportive family and supportive community. So my, that is the thing that I would say to people is don't be scared, reach out. There are people like you in the world and that 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 feeling of belonging, we are all, we all long for belonging. 
Mm -hmm. And tapping into that is, is the most healing thing. The other thing I would say to, I guess, to young people, but I think trans people, queer people in general is there is nothing wrong with you. You are normal. You are normal. Your experiences are normal. There is nothing wrong with you. That, that is just, that is the message of, if you want to just, what is queer therapy? It's that. Mm. There's nothing wrong with you. And again, figuring out, learning about heteronormativity, learning about social constructionism, learning about the stuff or systems, the world that we live in, being able to unpick some of that and belonging and community. I just have to, I just have to giggle a bit. Yeah, I mean it's amazing advice. I'm sorry, I'm such a bad person. My mind goes to if you're a queer therapist and a client comes in, you're like, "There's absolutely nothing wrong with you. You're normal." They're like, "Okay, bye. <laughs> I'm just gonna go live my life." And I'll be like, "You know, yeah, it's bad for business, but I'm happy. <laughs> I'm glad that happened." <laughs> but it's funny, like again, my I suppose in the beginning we were talking about shame. So many times in the session, it will come back to, I'm not good enough. I'm not okay. I'm not worthy. Those kind of themes just come up time and time again. And it's it's creating a collective. It's almost like trying to create a tipping point mm. for the individual through, again, belonging as part of that, where we're seeing ourselves mirrored in spaces when we feel like we're just normal and we're mm. okay. When we say, I am okay, that's massive. Do you mind, Chris, if we talk about, and just, I, I'm conscious of the time, do you have a couple more minutes? Is that okay? I do indeed, Paul. Just, I suppose, to bring neurodiversity into the space and to talk about the kind of, que- that, that intersectionality be- between queerness and neurodivergence. And myself, I would have sensory issues and ADHD. I was just very recently, like last year, diagnosed with that. I, I had so many coping me- mechanisms in place that like, I didn't realize until I started core training and we gain awareness of who you are in the world. But what's your experience been of that intersectionality between neurodivergence and queerness? So like you, Paul, I... I think I was diagnosed two years ago. I had I had an awareness of my kind of neurodivergence for some time, but decided to sort of take the plunge and actually get an assessment and diagnosis. I I kind of generally think I'm just a bit neurospicy. I think I'm majority ADHD, but I definitely have some autistic traits. I definitely have mild dyslexia. My the sort of intersection of sort of queerness and neurodivergence in terms of a kind of sort of psychotherapeutically we see it's not a correlation but it's a co-occurrence so we see within the queer community something it's between sort of 40 to 60 percent of the queer community are also neurodivergent and within the trans and gender diverse population we're seeing even higher percentages for that so again it's it's really common in Mm. my own kind of my own personal relationship with this those sort of intersections of my identity is I feel like I can't separate out those parts of my identity. So I I feel that my neurodivergent brain thinks in a way that is naturally non-binary. So what I mean by that is I feel like my neurodivergent brain is always looking at other perspectives and other associations mm. and other other pieces. And has always done that, has always looked at sort of I suppose, big picture stuff. And so I can't separate out my neurodivergence from my gender identity because my gender identity is exactly that. My gender identity is, I can't, I can't put myself in either category. I can't, I don't see myself as distilled into either of those categories. I, I guess my, again, my relationship to sort of neurodivergence so again, in terms of how I see it, I see it very much like neurodiversity is like biodiversity. So it's we wouldn't expect, for instance, a cactus to thrive in a wet wetland area. We would provide the right conditions for that cactus in order to thrive. And neurodivergence is similar. So historically, psychiatry and psychology has essentially tried to treat everybody the same way. And 
people are like, okay, but I'm not actually fitting into that. And my brain isn't doing that. And I feel like I'm deficient or I feel like I'm failing, but, but actually it's like biodiversity. If we're able to acknowledge that there are many, many millions, countless types of brains, countless types of plants in the world and developing. So there's, there's a term that's called niche construction. Niche construction is essentially finding the right conditions for every single person. So that's going to look different for every single client. But my niche construction is I need a lot of stimuli. I need a lot of, yeah, I need a lot of stimuli. That's definitely my sort of ADHD brain. But I also need to be able to have a lot of connection. That's my ADHD brain as well, needing connection. I have a lot of sort of rejection sensitivity. That's definitely my ADHD brain. I also struggle sometimes to read in between the lines. That's probably my sort of more autistic self. But, but I, I... I celebrate it. Historically, mm. I've I've pathologized those those traits of mine, but now I celebrate it. I'm like, well, that's that's just my individual quirks, and I've got to work with it. So, yeah, that's that's me. I that you frame that so well, and sometimes it's hard to kind of you, you just explained it so well. I have a just a divisive question that I kind of. I put out there, okay, it's just something that's kind of come up recently. Claude is looking at me. She's like, don't say it. Don't say it. Don't say it. But I, I kind of, I say it and some I people... I feel like I know what you're going to ask me. Oh, like if neurodivergence within the queer community is trauma-based. Mm, yeah. So I, again, I think this is a really difficult one to separate out and mm. to untangle. So there's, there's, a, there's a word that, a lot of my clients will use it's called autism, trauma and autism. How do we work out which one came first? And obviously we want to understand what the root, why our brain is the way it is. But I think it's more helpful to focus on, well, what is going to support you? What is going to help you with your relationship with yourself? So of course, I think, you know, PTSD, for instance, can present in many sort of have very similar traits to obviously ADHD and also autism as well. Sensory processing difficulties that we see a lot within sort of neurodivergence also presents itself in acquired mental health. Some things like PTSD again. So there's huge overlap. And again, maybe as, as professionals, we need to be questioning whether actually how, how important is it for us to be sort of separating these identity these identities out because ultimately our treatment pathways are the same mm. what what is going to support you in order to feel better about yourself in order for you to feel accommodations are put in place in the world there's arguments for and against that and currently as it stands there's still a lot of pathologizing when it comes to certain <clears throat> adhd for instance it's treated with medication that's the gold standard treatment for medication but some people in the community would argue, I don't need to medicate my brain. This is just my natural neurocognitive profile. Why would I need to medicate it? And then others will argue, well, it's easy. It's easier to live and navigate and move through this world medicated because the world has been created for this narrow, narrow, narrow window of people to thrive mm. in. So there's, there's huge complexity in that. And I don't think we have answers. I don't think we have answers yet, but it, it certainly again I can only speak for myself in terms of how I view my own I I I believe this is this is just me this is mm. just me I believe my life I've had traumas throughout my life and I believe how that interacted with my ADHD ended up sort of compounding matters and didn't help matters but I in my case I do just believe this is me with or without trauma I think it's a really compassionate way to look at it because the trauma is in the past, but cognitive, you are how you are in the moment. So there is kind of the reconciliation that I like that I am who I am and just have compassion for that in the moment. But yeah, yeah. I suppose it's just one of those things I can't just, yeah, I get given out to um, her. I'm, kind of curious I'm just what, curious. What, what do you think? What are your thoughts on this? Yeah. Again, because it's new to me and I have 
like that a lifetime of coping mechanisms like i sat at the back of the class in school i didn't i thought not being able to see the the blackboard was normal like i needed glasses up to the age of 60 like i got glasses when i was 16 i couldn't see up to the age of 16 the board so but i never said anything and i just kind of plodded along and i really struggled in school and i didn't vocalize it and so i internalized everything you internalize everything and yes have those coping mechanisms served me well they've gotten me through life i'm highly functioning inside (laughs) people say to me god you're so together it's like inside i'm screaming like my head is screaming sometimes but uh, and it's constantly go 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 but yeah my kind of thing around it would be that yes i've survived i've coped i'm in a very i'm very grateful for what i've achieved but my thinking is what potential have i lost what could i have done if I had, like, if this had been flagged when I was younger, if I had have had my glasses and being able to kind of see that board and interact in the way, yeah. So it, for me, it's reconciling with the loss of potential. So that would be where I'm at with it. And yeah, operating within my limitations cognitively currently, especially something like this a podcast and doing social media for it and all that sort of stuff and sometimes I'm kind of like I can't do this every day the thoughts of doing this every day and posting something every day and like hyper fixating on it for like an hour in the morning when I wake up and then like stuff like that yeah ADHD nightmare (laughs) but listen it's I'd be bored if I like then there's the other side (laughs) of it if I had an hour to myself to lie in bed I'd be like no you have to do something like you have to be doing something Sorry, Cloda, I rudely interrupted you. I'm sorry. Let's bring. No, it- no, you did. I, I was just, I, I just very quick point. My what I have experienced or what I've seen sometimes, and this was my hesitation by asking the question because the divisiveness that you kind of touched on there was that trauma is then used to hide or mask or put over a person. And actually, you said it earlier. Niche construction. Everybody has meet the person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And sometimes if you put a a trauma label on it, it removes them from services. It removes them from accessing care because, oh, that's just the trauma. It's like, actually, no, break that down. Come go further down into this, into who this person is and what they're, who they are and what they're presenting to you. And that was my only hesitation around that because I don't like them equated for that reason. Mm. They are here. It is happening. But I think sometimes I've just seen us going, well, that's just trauma. And and you don't get access to if you're questioning your gender or questioning your sexuality. Oh, well, it's because that trauma happened to you when you were a kid. It's just this. And I, and I really that kind of gets my back up a lot on that. Going, That's so unfair. Chris, just want to say thank you so much. We so appreciate your time. And just I feel like it's been a journey and I've learned so much. I've written down so much. Like that exposure to difference, that concept is the, the sphere instead of the spectrum. And then neurospicy. I love that. There's something kind of sexy about that. And then, <laughs> <laughs> neurospicy. I like it. So yeah. just thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Yeah, pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Ben. Where can people find you? So anybody that's listening and wanting to connect with you, where's the best place? Best place to find me is Instagram, so at the Q Therapist or or my website, so www.thequeertherapist.com. Brilliant. Okay, and we'll we'll put everything in the notes as well, and Voda as well. Get people going yes. over and yes. checking it out. Absolutely. Thank you Thanks. so much. Thanks Thank so you. much, Chris.